Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm Megan. And you're you, and you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories. So if you haven't visited in before, you might be wondering who Megan and I are. Uh, right, Megan? That's right. <laughs> so Megan and- Who are these guys? Who are these people? So we met each other at Carnegie Mellon U University uh, during dramatic writing program that we were in, and we decided to move out to Los Angeles. Uh, we both happen to like short stories, and that's why we're doing this podcast. Yes, and we appreciate everybody continuing to social distance and wear their masks and stay home when you can. And speaking of staying home and doing things like chores or walking your dog, our podcast is the perfect thing for you to download and listen to on your phone while you're doing all of those, all of those tasks. Agreed. And also, we're 100% uh, committed to diverse short stories. So we're looking for people of all backgrounds, all ages, and all cultures. So if you're a writer listening to this, make sure to go to nobodyreadshortstories.com and submit so we can see your stuff. Yes, we would love to read your story. And while you're visiting places, uh, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel and also visit us on Spotify or iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe to our podcast channel there and um, download and using the hashtag NRSS podcast. Yeah, speaking of which, that's for Twitter. So if you're a Twitter user or uh, you have Instagram or Facebook, please like and follow us because we want to be popular just because we want to uh, take over the world. Um, and like Megan said, uh, hashtag NRSS podcast. And uh, also check out our website. Uh, Megan has a website where anytime she has new information about her work or everything, she'll notify you. And I also do a flash fiction short story every week. So if you subscribe, you'll get one of those as well. All right, are we ready for Cranky? <gasps> Is it Cranky time already? All cranky right. Cranky time, Cranky time. Cranky time, I love Cranky time. For those who are just tuning in and who are listening, Cranky is a large square timer that I normally use to um, make sure I don't forget about my laundry. But for the purposes of this podcast, we are using it to make sure that Jeremy and I don't gab for too long and you guys leave us. <laughs> are we ready to crank Cranky? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Okay, Jeremy, why don't you tell us what you've been reading this week? Man, this is my favorite part of the whole thing. So this is the last time I will be talking about this book. I finished it. <laughs> the Song of Achilles. Mom, did you hear that? I finished this book uh, by Madeline Miller. Um, I don't want to joke about it too much. It's like a really beautiful story. Um, I, I already went and did a review on Goodreads. If you want to read that, check out my Goodreads. It's on the link below. Um, but it's probably one of the best books I've ever read, and I'm not, I'm, I, I've read a lot of books. It's beautiful. It'll probably make you cry. Megan, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading this great uh, book of short stories right now called Friday Black. It's by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. If you are familiar with Marlon James or George Saunders, he kind of writes in, in their vein. And he is such a fantastic visceral voice his his um his short stories cover 
uh, racism and capitalism and consumerism. Yes, Jeremy, do you have a question? No, can you hold the book back up? I just love the cover. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So the cover has a bunch of uh, people with hair, strands of hair and everything, and uh, it has stripes of earthy colors. It's a really pretty cover. I like the cover. It's actually like a lion with oh. its, it's, 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 it's like its mane, and there's a there's its mouth with its teeth that are like, you know, growling at you, uh, which is which is indicative of how visceral this book is. Um, I think we definitely need to watch this space because this guy is such a powerful new voice. I think this is his first book that came out last year, and um, he's just so smart and uh, has a has a wonderful way that I really admire of taking a really deep and dark subject and making it palpable and entertaining and still uh, getting his point across. So um, if you're interested, uh, I would definitely say check this out if you're looking for new short stories. We'll have the link for you below too so you can check it out. I'm definitely gonna add it on my list. Megan, stop bringing books that I have to add to my list. My list is so big already. <laughs> I don't appreciate it. I I, I'm sorry, Jeremy, that I'm making you read too many books. That's just, that's just really awful. I mean, do you see this? I have, I have. Well, which one are you going to read oh, next? Oh, that's a good point. Y'all, I need your help. So I'm trying to choose between Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil or The Picture of Dorian Gray. If, uh, if anybody's read these books, like, please recommend which one I should read by, uh, leaving a comment below. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that I know. Megan's vote is for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Megan, what, why do you like this book? Because I don't know anything about it. Sorry, Jeremy, time's up. <laughs> so tonight's story is A World One Woman, written by Glenn Schiffman, and it is the story of a young a male gigolo in the 1960s whose latest Jane turns out to be more than he bargained for. And before we get into the story, we just want to let everyone know that this story does contain explicit sexual content and um, some references to abuse. So uh, please proceed as you feel comfortable. Catherine Friedman was a senior partner in a law firm that consulted to the governor and had recently negotiated the merger that turned South Carolina's premier state bank into South Carolina's premier national bank. Catherine was the one of the six distinct personalities in one body who insisted on pulling the strings. When she had sex, she liked it fast, loose, and dog style. Mara Friedman, the youngest of the six, was only 19 and still a virgin. I never saw her naked or had sex with her. The Asian mini poodle, the one that slept on an embroidered down pillow was her pet. Mara fed whiny, yak butter flown in from Tibet, among other delicacies, because as Mara told me, The first of its breed in the U.S. was a gift from the Dalai Lama to FDR, and we wanted to feel at home. Francine Friedman was 28. She liked to be on top. Sometimes Francine would lift off me when she thought I was about to come, and then she would jack me off. She said she liked to watch the spurt. She would squeal with excitement if the shot reached my navel, as if she was competing in a sporting event. Normally, I only do it with older men, Francine said the first time I came in my navel. 
but you'll do. Savannah Friedman never told me her age. She was the tallest and thinnest and the only one who would 69 with me. Three of them carved, craved sex, but Savannah was the insatiable nymph. She was the personality who emerged to pull me back into their clutches whenever I got worried about being a sex toy. It was her crotch that I privately described as the jaws of life. Lee Friedman was Rolls-Royce rich, museum benefactress rich. The society persona Lee was on the board of directors of the Palm Isle Resort. She was the one who set me up in the private cabin. Her sine qua non was influence and control. Lee was also the birth name, the name on the law firm, and the name on the legal title to the 36-room, 6-bath, late 19th century Nantucket-style white frame house on the far southern end of Bordeaux Island, the most exclusive real estate of the Carolina coast. Lee's six-acre estate, called Briarwood, was adjacent to a deer sanctuary on the west and was a very private quarter mile from an estuary that separated it from North Bordeaux. In essence, I was living on a private barrier reef off the coast of South Carolina. Lee liked her fucks to go long and slow as I did, so I was happy to oblige. So it was also a, she was also a bit of a germaphobe and she was the one who finally admitted to me that we're diagnosed multiple personalities. That makes us laugh. We don't dissociate. There are six of us, and we enjoy each other's company. Lee told me the morning after I had sex with her, and Savannah the night before in their separate bedrooms, although I was quick to notice that Savannah would fuck me anywhere. I've met five. You said six, I asked. We were walking on the beach on her private barrier island about a week after I arrived and a day before Hurricane Isabel made landfall. Darlene, the mother of our two sons, you'll probably never meet her. When the boys were around, she was prominent, but now she stays in the background. She does keep Mara in line, though. Lee paused, considering. There is one other, but we don't know her. Even Catherine doesn't know her. We call her the Dark Queen because when she comes out, we all black out. But don't worry. Back up. There are two sons? She nodded. The older one, Lance, is your age. You won't meet them either. They don't come around, or if they do, they give me plenty of notice. They don't like being surprised by my latest lover. You keep saying, don't worry, but is there a husband somewhere who might come home one night? There's been three. But again, don't worry, they're all dead. All dead? What you do, fuck them to death? Why should I not worry? Because you shouldn't. They were all much older than you. No adverbs explained her smile. No adjectives described my alarm. Jesus, God, how did I get here? Lee heard my thoughts. Yes, that too. They all in their one brain had staggering psychic abilities. But though Catherine seemed to be the driving persona, the one in control when control was needed, Lee was the communicator. Silly boy, there's no way you wouldn't be here. I've had the Edgar Casey Society do your chart. We were Atlanteans together. Atlanteans? What's that? In Lemuria. In fact, we've had many lives together. We? Me and you? Or me and all of you? 
all of us or none of us or one of us, does it matter? By the way, I'm getting that you are a touch homophobic. We'll have to do something about that. Does it matter? To me, it does. And who says I'm homophobic? You'd prefer a heteromyopic. Women turn me on, men don't. Don't protest too much. You may learn to enjoy it. Enjoy it? Hell's bells. You better not be implying that there's a man in there, too. Could be. We call her the Dark Queen, but we don't know. I told you, we black out. What have I missed describing? Oh, yeah. I called them personas because they simply were not aspects of one personality. Even though the occupied one human body, they were separate individuals with different body shapes, different levels of intelligence, different tastes in clothes, makeup, perfume, and even books and foods. Yes, I said body shapes. There was a force in that woman who could shapeshift that body. If one personality emerged at any given moment, the body would literally get shorter or taller, breasts thinner or heavier, the face would change to match the age, and the voice to match its character. It was unnerving, enchanting, spellbinding witchcraft. Lee's body was the shapeliest. Catherine's was about 10 pounds heavier than Lee. Francine had the largest breasts and the shortest stature. Savannah was the tallest and thinnest. Mara, the 19-year-old whose shapeshifted body I never saw naked, was the one who told me that their hair color, dark brown, never changed. On the south wall of Mara's bedroom, they all had their own bedrooms, was a large portrait baroquely framed of a heavy-set young woman. Who's that? I had to ask, thinking it was a former resident. That's my mother, Darlene, was Mara's surprised answer. Can't you tell? Oh my god, I thought. One person thinks another person is her mother, which then made me wonder if the sons are real. There's an adage I subscribe to. It's better to know where we are going and not why than it is to know why we are going and not where. How I ended up in the home of an heiress with six personalities or personas, since her personalities did not disassociate, was because I knew neither why nor where I was headed. I'd been a male prostitute in New Orleans. I was hoping in Charleston that I wouldn't have to make a living that way, but the best laid plans. I had escaped New Orleans for South Carolina and the home of my Uncle Joe five months earlier. I'd been ripped off at gunpoint in a parking lot in the French Quarter. I was lucky the mug didn't get all my stash. I had enough money for a greyhound to Charleston, plus a lunch along the way. I needed money, and I was hoping Joe would lend me some. I found Uncle Joe and his third wife living on Palm Isle, north of the harbor. Well, I'll be damned if it ain't my long-lost nephew! Uncle Joe welcomed me warmly from the open door of his red brick and white porticus home. You're tall! Tall like your Grandpa Sullivan! Taller by head! Then Wendell, where'd you get that muscle? Your arms are like Popeye! Aunt Dorothy, Wendell's mother, and Uncle Joe had been divorced 15 years. I took it as a good sign Joe knew Wendell was shorter than me. It meant they kept in touch. I lift weights when I can. Damn! I guess, well, come in! Come in! Heidi! Heidi Ann, come meet my nephew!
Heidi Ann got up from a couch in the living room and walked toward me, and as our hands softly touched, our eyes locked and my heart skipped and skipped again. Heidi Ann was blonde and so blue-eyed that looking into them made me giddy, distorted like vertigo must feel. My ears were buzzing, my heart was in my throat, my toe, tongue was so thick it affected my breathing, and my face was so flushed it burned. Heidi Ann! Why don't you call the club and tell them we'll be three for dinner? Uncle Joe said rather forcefully. Heidi Ann unlocked our eyes and nodded at her husband. Uncle Joe had made a chunk of money in his 50-plus years, and not all of it, I'm sure, was legit. After a downstairs tour of the house that included stopping at the wet bar, a billiards table, and a classical pinball machine, we sat on the back veranda that overlooked the marina where their brand-new ferry swordsman was docked. Heidi Ann brought beers, and I told them some of my story from Mother's Death to New Orleans to South Carolina, omitting, of course, I had been ripped off and run out of New Orleans at gunpoint by a pimp. Uncle Joe knew that I was a bastard, that I had been adopted out of an orphanage at age 12 by Marion, a wealthy widow. What Joe didn't know was that up until age 16, Marion was a bit of a perv, and like taking baths with me and giving me massages. Then George Joe's older brother had married Marion to get his hands on her money. At that point, I was sent to a prep school. Two years later, the day after I graduated, Marion committed suicide. I need to buy a car and get back north. I get a monthly check doled out by Marion's estate that George can't touch. If you could loan me a thousand, I'll pay you back the first of May. Why had I reached out to Uncle Joe? I was gambling Joe would get implacable pleasure doing anything that pissed off George. I was half right. Wall, I could do that, but I'd have to charge you interest. The be in the business I'm in. He put up his hand before I could interrupt. Or I could do you one better and find you a job. With your muscle, you could easy carry an 80-pound bag 36 holes. Then, by the first, you'll have your trust allowance and some extra, and I'll help you buy a fine ride. That being the business I'm in, you could stay here in the basement room until then. Oh, did I mention the year was 1964? $1,000 would buy me a very fine ride, perhaps a used Trans Am, one I would sell up north for a profit. The next day, Uncle Joe arranged a job for me as a caddy at a golf resort on Palm Isle where he and Heidi were members. I caddied for women in the beginning. In fact, my first caddy was for Heidi Ann. After walking just 18 holes with Heidi and her friends, I learned that membership cost 20 thou a year, 30 for couples, and that Heidi Ann, who in her mid-30s was 20 years younger than Uncle Joe, had two years before then been a hostess at the club. Did, can someone say gold digger? Within weeks, I was caddying for all of Heidi Ann's lunch club friends, bridge club friends, Clemson friends, and Pi Phi alumni friends. Around May 1st, as I was about to get my allowance check and buy a car, Heidi and Joe, so I thought, pulled some strings and I was offered residence in one of the resort's cabins that was reserved for staff. It was a lone cabin accessible from the parking lot via hedgerow that concealed easy access. Rent was only $100 a month, and I was already eating at least one meal a day out the back door of the kitchen. 
Believe me, I caught a lot of grief from the other caddies and low-end personnel who wanted that cabin and who got passed over by me, the new guy, and a damn Yankee to boot. Late one night, two weeks after I set up residence, Heidi Ann came by my cabin to collect. It was no surprise. All the signals were there. I was half expecting her. She was one of the reasons I decided to stay for a while. She was easy to look at. We had locked eyes more than once, and she had a delicate touch that made my head swim. I don't know how much, much about auras or karma, only what I read in Pulp Fiction. I knew I was good at flirting. <laughs> Hell, I had been a male escort. I guess I put out one of Fuck Musk. So when Heidi Ann's friends began dropping by, sneaking by in many cases, I was ready for them in all the all business sense of it. And they too knew the game. They rewarded me sometimes with gifts, but usually with cash tips. Heidi didn't ask for a cut, but she did expect freebies. And my God, but she was horny as an engagement ring on Valentine's Day. It took me a while to get used to South Carolina Country Club women. Their accent nothing like the Delta Blues of Luciana. I had a maple syrup poured on caramel custard flavor, but that sorority sister sweetness was the outside show. What was in... What was it somebody said about sincerity? If you can fake that, you've got it made. Lord, could those women fake sincerity. Me? I had to work at it. But damn, when I went down on them, on my unwashed bedsheets, their batty-eyed accents got all gravel gritty and full of Blue Ridge corn mash. Some of these southern broads could outcuss a hooker on strike, especially if the subject was either their husbands or the civil rights movement. It was easy living for a while, but I knew it wouldn't last. I was a gigolo, selling out to lonely married women twice my age, women who dripped unhappy money. So I toned my muscles and tanned myself bronze, and with my service tips and caddy tips, I made the best of it. I knew Heidi was using me, but I was slow to figure out her motives. She certainly was good at pretending to care. Me, I wanted nothing more than status quo. For one thing, I swear she goddamn marinated in a perfume she must have bought at a swap meet. It made me dinky, until I realized the marinade had an upside. It helped me hold my pop longer. Then, sometime around Labor Day 1964, a husband showed up at my whoring cabin. It was no contest. I had the muscles, and thanks to Heidi Ann, a 22 caliber pistol and a shoulder holster hanging on the wall behind the door. I assumed Uncle Joe did not know Heidi Ann had lifted one of his many firearms and brought it to me. I did not want to know why Heidi Ann determined I needed a gun, but one thought did cross my mind. She wanted me to shoot someone. Uncle Joe, maybe? My gut churned that worst-case scenario. She had a lot to gain and nothing to lose if Uncle Joe was six feet under and someone else had put him there. I considered I was being set up. I wasn't naive, so I kept the pistol out of reach. If Uncle Joe burst in on me while I was in bed with his wife, I'd be at his mercy and so would she. Ten days after the first husband backed down, a second husband arrived and a standoff followed. This guy seemed ready and willing to match muscle. Brittany, you in there? He snarled through the latch screen door. 
I'm sorry, I don't drink this stuff. My wife, you asshole! Miss Fontaine Brandy, the woman I caddy for on Tuesday mornings, I didn't realize she was married. Don't you smart me, you ass! You shit for brains! He tugged on the screen door. It was bolted and I was holding tight to the cheap handle. Brandy! He leaned forward and yelled into the room. If you're in there, your ass is grass! He said before he turned and walked away. The next night, a lawyer came with an offer of money and a ticket out of town. His timing was interesting. I figured it must have been 11 p.m. when the dude knocked on my door. He arrived just as the evening news came on. I was watching the black and white rabbit ears TV that very lawyer's wife had given me. The wife, who liked to fuck in the dark with only the glow of a TV test pattern for backlight. In fact, when I answered the door, I thought it might be her. I quickly realized I had no good options. I figured I was about to be fired as well as run out of town. But what the hell, I said. I'd consider the offer of it was money in a car instead of a ticket. The car doesn't have to be new. Your year-old Chrysler will do, I smirked. You've just made a big mistake, was the lawyer's unblinking reply. The next evening, a sheriff with time on his hands arrived. I opened the door and Sheriff Wallace Wilson said, You in a heap of trouble, you know that, son. I stifled a laugh and didn't answer. He continued, These people are not to be messed with, but I think you understand they don't want a public scandal, you fucking their women and all. He grinned and his gold teeth leered at me. They said to tell you, you can keep the clothes and the fancy leather suitcases. There'll be a car come by a half an hour with an envelope. In the meantime, you talk to no one. I'll be close by. He indicated with a nod of his head at his squad car, watching to make sure. He hitched up his belt and turned away, then turned back. Maybe you better just give me your gun now before someone gets hurt. I considered saying, what gun? Instead, I handed him the twenty-two holster and all. He accepted it without looking at it. Good boy. I hope you realize you're getting off easy. If I had my way, I'd throw you overboard ten miles out and tell you to swim for it. The car was a yellow cab. The envelope didn't have money or a bus ticket. It had an address, which I showed the driver. The destination, it turned out, was Lee's Mansion on Bordeaux Isle, which brings us back to... There's a body on that beach. Lee was standing near the French doors that led out to the balcony of her cavernous, all-white bedroom. Her black ne negligee flinted silver from an outside light reflecting off macrame curtain glass. The negligee completed her like wings complete a butterfly. She had such bearing, she was like the object of a Victorian poem. The French doors were closed. It was still raining. Four days it had been raining remnants of tropical storm Isabel, but the rain no longer sounded torrential. Her right hand held the receiver, her left the body of a pearl-white princess phone, the cord stringing out twenty feet across the white rug. Hello? Hello? Her voice was sharp, not worried about waking me. Damn, I thought I had him. She looked back, saw I was sitting up. I felt her look at the silhouette of my face and hair. Then, 
felt her look again at my chest, and my muscles shiny with salty sweat. I'm getting a dial tone, she murmured. Maybe the mainland. She dialed again after clicking the princess button several times. A long pause filled with anticipation, and then... Wallace, this is Lee Friedman. Yes, we're fine, thank you. Look, I know Bordeaux is not your jurisdiction, but I can't get through to my local police. And I thought you'd like to know that the storm has washed a body up on my beach. Yes, no doubt. You'll get hold of the local boys, won't you? Thank you. She cradled the phone and set it down, stood silent, looking out the French doors towards the Atlantic. It's dark and it's raining and the beach is 50 yards away. How can she see a body? She turned, looked this time at my face, as though reading my mind. Crooked her head to the right and crooked her head to the right and smiled without parting her lips. Then left the pale light buffering through the glass. The shadow of her curves and the sway in her breast as she float, floated towards me made my cock stir. When I felt her warm breath by my ear and her nipples tickling mine, the stir became sturdy. Your perfume is amazing, I groaned when she touched me. Four hundred dollars an ounce, it better be. You know, you have strong spirits protecting you, and they block most of your thoughts. But when you want me, your thoughts are very loud. Strong spirits, huh? I thought I'd left those behind me. Apparently they didn't get the message. Her left hand stroked me and her tongue licked at my ear. In less time than it took Mary Poppins to open her umbrella, I was hard as a Bobby's nightstick and ready to be straddled. So, Savannah Ha whispered, you can go back to sleep or you can fuck me this time and then go back to sleep. Savannah's voice was summertime slow, with a southern drawl, and her tongue had a salt marsh drool that served her well in the right places. Savannah's breasts were smaller than Lee's, but Savannah was the sexiest, the loosest, the least inhibited of the shape-shifting six. How can I resist you, Savannah? I whispered just as trimmed iliac curls tickled my nose. You're always wet. I awoke to an 8 a.m. chime and rain still drizzling, still dripping from the eaves. I crawled from the bed, stood, yawned, stretched, and checked my surroundings to see if anything was different, like I always do, wherever I am. It's a habit I learned in childhood. Lee's bedroom had artwork on all the walls. There was Tiffany lamps and a French armoire. There was even a new RCA color television set, one of the three in the house. One thing I noticed, there were no family photos. I strolled over to the French doors to check. In the gray drizzle, I could just make out the shoreline. There was something, a large dark shape on the white sand. But there was so much floatsome from the storm, I wouldn't have assumed it was a body. Good morning. You're up early. Lee's society voice said. Well, at least some of you. No bones about it, I said. It's still there, is it? The body. Of course the body. You've been here two weeks and you still forget I can read your mind. There's a dark shape the size of a body. 
It's hard to tell. How could you even see anything like that in the middle of the night in the rain? Hmm. Let's just say a little better told me. She was halfway out of bed, feet sliding into waiting slippers, black negligee and a crump near the pillow. She grabbed a robe from her vanity chair, the one with Lee stitched on the pocket. As she lifted it from the chair, the belt pulled a bottle of face cream off a vanity table onto the white rug. She walked toward me, not glancing at the bottle. A little bird, I said, suspicious but not disbelieving. An owl, actually. A spirit friend. Helps me see in the dark. You know about spirit friends. I know you do. Alarmed, I recoiled. An entirely new version, new voice, new face of this whirlwind woman was about to put her lips to mine. I'm sorry, have we met? You're different, your voice. Sweetheart, don't you recognize me? I'm Virginia. I'm the one who loves you. She coyly assured me. Sex toy naked, listening to the rain, it hit me. Though I had no clear vision of the path I was on, I did realize I no longer thought this woman was harmless. Sudden fear throttled my heart and fight or flight cord at my gut. A woman who had a moment before been a 40-year-old society dame had shapeshifted into an image of a Southern Belle version of Virginia, the first and the only girl I'd ever really loved. How did you do that? Virginia laughed with delight. What? Change. How, pray tell? She had a twinkle in her eye. We play with your mind. We change into your perceptions, imaginings, desires. Her lips brushed mine. Her hands stroked my cock and then... Oh no. They're telling me I've said too much. They're mad at me. I jerked back. Stop. Wow. I get it. It gives you awesome power over people. No wonder you're a good lawyer. That's quite a talent. A questioning, almost worried look crept into this new persona's eyes. And then abruptly I was looking at the persona's mask and a body of Catherine, the lawyer. You're right. We don't shapeshift. Catherine said. We make you think we do. We simply work with your expectation and with transference. We use that too. But that doesn't mean we're not separate personas with different self-images, which we can also project. I interrupted. But why Virginia? That's all in the past. We all agreed you need someone you truly loved. You still have unrequited love for her. You have to have a reason to want to stay. Savannah is the only one of us who likes the unemotional stud side of you. By the way... We all like it when you call us whirlwind woman. And with that, Savannah reappeared, and all her cooing smolder. My eyes watched her taller body grow via rippling waves, which I could clearly see was physically happening. Watching a sorceress literally shapeshift by manipulating my perception was frighteningly seductive. Savannah dropped to her knees, and her mouth quickly found my cock, and... Once again, I started to swell. God damn it, I don't like being so predictable, so pliable. She stopped and pulled back, got up and turned away, leaving me half erect. 
She spotted the jar of face cream on the rug, frowned and got a box of tissues off the vanity. Naked and ashamed, I headed to the northwest corner of the bedroom to where the door to the his bathroom was. When I came out fifteen minutes later, showered, shaved, teeth brushed, face and hand cologne drenched, a woman whose presence gave me the shivers was seated in one of the wing-back chairs at the marble table, her back to me. She nodded for me to sit down. There were two scones, china cups, and saucers, cream pitcher and sugar bowl, and a Wedgwood coffee pot on the table. Why do you have to leave New Orleans? She answered in a voice that was flat and unemotional and had no tone. Another voice that was new to me. New Orleans? Who said anything about New Orleans? I tried changing the subject. What about the body on the beach? Shouldn't we... Forget it. Why do you think Lee called the sheriff at home at four in the morning? That body is one of his swim-for-it bodies. He will clear it away as soon as possible. Sorry? Don't be. So, why do you have to leave New Orleans? It was hopeless to contend against her psychic ability. I was a male escort in a bar, mostly just to get older women to buy me more drinks. But then the man who ran the place wanted me to hustle. You know. Men, that's where I drew the line. Hmm. So that's how you got started. I was wondering. It makes you real uncomfortable having queers drool all over you, doesn't it? Her gray eyes bored into me. This one seemed older. It wasn't Darlene. I wonder why. She continued. There must be something in your past you're hard blocking. Well, that's unfortunate. We have to resolve this. I can't have you costing me money. I know men who will pay $500 just to see you naked. Imagine what they'd pay for more. Once again, the gray eyes, even duller, dug at my eyes until I felt chills in my temples. Were you abused? Raped? She asked and then said, Oh, it was a priest. You were in the orphanage. She took a bite of scone. I'm going to order some weightlifting equipment. We have to keep you buff. And it will help you get past the last of your silly shame. You lost me, I stammered. What's going on here? She poured coffee in the tiny china cup and pushed it towards me. I reached for it and touched her finger. It felt ice cold. I eyed her. You know perfectly well what I'm talking about. Her gray eyes stare was hard, cold, distant, and disquieting. But since you insist, I need you for bait. Her voice had ice in it. Her voice scared me. Who are you? I said as evenly as possible. I needed to cover the fear in my voice because I knew this person was the Dark Queen, the one that blocked out the others. Her Norse eyes read my thoughts. She smiled a skeletal smile. You want to use me, I muttered, to blackmail people, to have power over them, 
to threaten them. You're not going to just pimp me out. You're going to take pictures, film maybe, all in secret. You're going to throw big parties, and I don't know. Next thing I'll end up on some room with some politician or banker. She shrugged. This is what I do. And I won't be allowed to leave, right? You won't want to leave. You will have money, clothes, sex, the good life. Wait a minute. I get the feeling there's whips and chains and leather. This is bullshit. No, I ain't gonna get my dick sucked or my ass cornholed or beat on someone so you can play games with people's lives. No. The answer is no. Well, in that case, the Dark Queen said, you can swim for it. The end. Good job, Jeremy. <sighs> All Woo! right. I forgot right. I forgot that we're talking afterward. <laughs> That's why you guys yes, see me staring. Use your words. Use your words. <laughs> if I slip into that voice, please forgive me. Oh, that was fun. That, that was, was so fun. much fun. Yeah, I enjoy doing those voices. And uh one of the things I really like about this story is that um you know, nowadays we would call her uh, dissociative identity disorder, but I like that um, that not all of her personas are, are evil. You know, it's, it's like his helpers and also his antagonist is the same woman. And I, um, anyway, I, I, I really appreciate that, especially um, the fact that she has this disorder. You know, it's not, it's not completely vilifying her, it's just showing her complexity. Yeah, I liked, I also really liked the reveal. Like, it's so messed up that she's able to steal a character outside of herself that he knows outside of her. That is terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. That was, ugh, moments for me. Yeah, absolutely. She is, she is one powerful woman. I, I can't wait to hear your recording with Glenn. <laughs> Yes. So um, unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, we were unable to have Glenn here tonight for a live interview. However, um, we do have a recorded interview that we did with Glenn last week. So if you're watching, don't be completely surprised when you see me wearing something a little bit different than what <laughs> I'm wearing right now. <laughs> so without further ado, here is uh, me interviewing our wonderful writer, Glenn Schiffman. Okay, hi Glenn, can you hear me? I can hear you just <laughs> fine, yeah. Okay, great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. I can okay. hear you great. Um, thank you so much. Sorry for all of the the back and forth, but <laughs> thank you for sticking with it and helping us figure out how to make all of this work. So for everyone who's listening, we have, um, where do I even start? Uh, Glenn is in Montana right now, and uh, Jeremy and I are in Los Angeles, and Glenn is, we are watching Glenn on, on a Kindle, and listening to him on the phone, and I'm, I have him on my phone on speaker, so it's like a bunch of cans happening right now, so if there's some weirdness on the the audio or if you get a little feedback or 
some uh, some multiple feeds of Glenn or myself coming in. That is the reason why. <laughs> yeah. We just have to hope the cat doesn't bump the table and it all goes out, right? Oh, right, right, exactly. It's like it's like a house of cards right now with technology. <laughs> Well, uh, we, we miss you down here in L.A. Uh, for those uh, who don't know, Glenn is a, is a member, one of the high-ranking uh, members of uh, the writers group that Jeremy and I participate in. And he recently moved to Montana, and he is sorely, sorely missed. And so we are really, really pleased that we're able to connect with him and to um, show everybody your story and read everybody uh, this, this wonderful story. So before we uh, get into the questions, I just want to like uh, tell everybody a little bit about you, Glenn. So uh, this is what Glenn says about himself. Uh, Glenn Schiffman drove a big rig for the entertainment in industry from age 20 to age 40. From age 40 to age 50, he was a gigolo. And in his 50s, he found his spiritual path waiting for him and managed to acquire a BA in history an MFA in creative writing, and a master's in spiritual psychology. In his 60s, he started writing his story. He's now 78, and he currently lives in Montana, where he writes, tells stories, and hangs out with his grandsons. So that is that is just a snippet of Glenn Schiffman in his life. Uh, <laughs> you can't sum him up in, a, in 150 words, uh, or, or in a, you know, 150,000 words. I'll, I'll tell you when I first came to writers group, and uh, Glenn was Glenn was giving notes on a on a piece, and he said something about, oh yeah, when I used to drive this limo for some high end escorts, and then he lost me because I was like, oh my god, this guy's got the stories, and I and I want to know him, and this is where I'm supposed to be, so. Uh, Glenn is Glenn is fascinating. He is a he's a wonderful writer, and we're we're so we're so happy that that he's here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here too, and I have been able to uh, join the LA Studio City Writing Group by Zoom, and that's been a real joy. Oh, that's been it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That is that is one thing that I've enjoyed about the quarantine and having the writers group on Zoom is being able to see the faces of people that we don't normally get to see. You and um, Alex, um, another member who hardly ever gets to come in person, has been able to join regularly. So uh, there are some some bright spots that are, that are coming out of that. Um, so Glenn, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your story. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy and I are just in love with this story, and we um, we had such a good time reading it. Uh, first of all, I would just like to know what was the inspiration for this piece. The inspiration was um, I wrote it down, but I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> some of that life. And uh, um, the second question leads into the first question, and I can answer the two together, if you would. Oh, yeah, sure. The, uh, the, I was aware, I knew that, I knew somebody 
that had that multiple personality. And um, it was a really difficult uh, period of time in my life. And um, that person was very uh, psychically powerful. So I um, wanted, I really wanted to tell a story about him, that person. And since I had some, uh, before I met my wife, I had some experience as a male escort. <laughs> uh, I wanted to, I put the two things together, the, the, the person with a multiple personality and the um, previous, that previous phase of my life. Mm -hmm. So, oh, I, I, I love that. I love that that her psychic ability is based on someone that you that you knew in real life and that's one of the elements of that that character slash person of many personas that i that i really love like that that she is so layered in all the ways that she is layered there are layers upon layers upon layers that are very very powerful and that comes through so well in the story that you 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 like her many layers and you are charmed by her many layers but then you also realize that there's this very powerful almost dark and then very dark um a persona coming out and it's it's very complex yeah. and really and really wonderful and i think you handle that really really well in this story she was a profoundly manipulative person i didn't get to show um, that she was in real life a lawyer, and she was a very successful lawyer. Uh, I think I did allude to that in the story. That was one of the personalities, but um, I mean, this is all one person, and she was not dis she did not disassociate, except for the the ice. I call her, I think the ice queen, the real dark uh, figure underneath was the only one that would block all the others up when they when she came out the others didn't know what they went into a coma kind of thing mm -hmm. otherwise otherwise she had six personalities are very aware of each other and they would split back and forth when, as the situation called for it wow it's really a fascinating person oh i bet but, but very manipulative and very um you don't want to spend a whole lot of time mm -hmm. You yeah, know, but she would wrap you up like a spider. Do you <laughs> do you feel like writing this story helped you understand her more, or help you sort of understand your own experience with this person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was trying to. I was trying to understand also just how how she used that power because she was she could literally shape shift. Well. Nobody can do that, but what they she did was she played with other people's minds, and that's how psychically powerful she was. Mm. Is she would she would make you think that she had changed uh, physical shape in, in addition to her personalities. Wow! I mean, you see her, you can watch her get taller, but it wasn't really happening, and that's what you know. It's a fascinating thing to figure that out how she did that. Right. And if psych, someone isn't 
you know, from here. <laughs> it's hard to otherwise describe it. So Right. Well, I think you do. It's also a fun story because it, you know, <laughs> it, it, uh, that part of it is fiction. And, I mean, I'll answer some of that in the other questions, that I, you know. But um, it, was, it was a fun story to write. Oh, I bet. Yeah, and I and I feel that in the story. Like I feel this energy of fun. Like there's a, there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of darkness in this story. But but it, your main you, the the um, the speed at which your main character kind of goes through his telling of the story and and shifting back and forth in time feels very energetic and and full of of fun. And and I'm just. Every time I read it, I'm like, "Oh my God, where is this going?" And it, it just kind of pull, pull, you know um, propels you forward um, in in a very entertaining way. So I, I think you, yeah, I to 100% agree with you. It's it's very much a very fun story. Um, do you have any writers that you feel like you write like, or creative influences that you feel came into this story? Well, I tell you what, the, the, the uh, Hunter Thompson is one of my influences, and uh, Yael Doctorow is an influence um, in, in terms of when I when I write, because uh, I like to be I like to use uh, I like to use places as characters and um, events and history and historical times and that, and I'll blend that in, and so. And then I have a certain, um, the Hunter Thompson is a certain, you know, what's the right word? Not, huh? Well, it's a voice, yeah. It's a voice. <laughs> it's a voice. Um, yeah, I have that. It's true. Um, but I really have my own voice. And, uh, yeah, I think it's hard to. I think the story is my, in my voice, really. I, I, I don't. I can't pinpoint uh, a specific any other writer that might have made me think about uh, writing that way. So I read a lot, but I don't. And I like to. I like to cop phrases and things that really. Um, but I, you know, I'll change them around a little bit. It's, it's easy to, you know. It's easy to imitate without it sounding like you're imitating. Like, there was nobody that I was imitating in this one. This was I was I was exploring that character, and it just the rest of the story filled in around it. Um, absolutely, and and I think it works so well, and it is 100% your voice. You know, I I feel like if um. There's a there's a couple of other stories I can think of that that I might say are very Glenn Schiffman, but this one absolutely has that has has your voice to it. You know, I've I'm a huge fan of of Dennis Johnson's work, and I've always thought of your work as like naughty Dennis Johnson. Uh, just uh, I guess, I like yeah, and the the thing I like about Dennis Johnson is that he can kind of put you in the brain of someone, and you don't even really know that you're there living the sort of um, the mental conversation with this character until you're already in it. And then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm here for a long, I'm along for the ride. 
And I felt like that when I was reading this story, it, it, it starts off and you're just, and then you know that you're in the mind of this character and you're, you're unsure what kind of character this person is. And he's having these strange interactions. And then it's just, uh, then you're just along for the ride. And, um, so I, I think it works. Yeah. Absolutely. And so is he. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. It just adds that extra layer to the story, not just for us relating to the main character, but how the main character is relating to, to this woman and it, and it all works so well. Do you feel like, um, this story was difficult to, to write? Well, the, what, what was difficult was that I had, ne I had never spent any length of time in uh, South Carolina. And I knew nothing really about those um, outer banks and those islands. So I, I had to do a lot of research, and I still feel like uh, that if someone from South Carolina read it, even though it's set in the 60s, um, it would be... They go, oh, that's just stupid. That didn't happen at all, right? But or that that place doesn't exist, and that's uh, you know, I have, um, but I'm really into place, as I think you guys know from the when I when I have notes and other people's writing, and um, so I did. I really explored. The, it's physically possible what. I created there, but I am, I, and I have been to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, but, um, and it's a beautiful place, and there's a lot, I did a little history on it too, and there's a lot of things people don't know about it, it's a very cosmopolitan city, um, it's not so much uh, like the rest of South Carolina, okay, <laughs> so um, it has, it's not rural, it's a very old and, you know, as a, a multicultural, um, and that's where all the money is in South Carolina, too. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, so I, I studied it, and, um, but it took, it took, you know, I like to be true to place, and I, I didn't know much about that place, so, um, it was easy to put it, put it in a hurricane season, because then I have to worry too much about describing the weather or the animals or the birds or, you know, what everything was being blown around and rained out at the time. So um, that kept the character indoors and not having to deal with the rest of the, the place and what it was like and why I was kind of trapped there and all that. It was, <laughs> I did trap him there. <laughs> yeah, and you, you do that, you trap him, but at the same time, I feel like the place is a character. You know, we feel this place, and it and it very much affects this this person that we're following. So, so even if you limited the amount of talk that you might normally do about a place, I I still think you achieved what you like to achieve in in making a place a character, a very menacing character in this uh, in this instance. Yeah. Yeah, that was. So if there's anything difficult about it, was it was that it was my own challenge there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that it was difficult, but it was a challenge mm -hmm. to deal you with. Know, yeah, that's you're right. Oh, that's great. That's great. Is um, is there anything else that you would like to say about your story, or anything you would like us to know? I'm working on a 
working on a lot of things right now, but I write every day, and uh, I have the freedom to do it, and the time to do it, and it's a bliss for me, so I, I'm, I, you know, one of the things that, that Barbara and I are going to do is um, we're polishing the rock and roll story, and we're going to podcast it. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um so I, I mentioned earlier that Glenn drove a big rig for the entertainment industry, and he lived um, in the world of rock and roll for many, many years, and has so many wonderful stories. And has written a book, which he, which he just mentioned, and um, it sounds like they're going to be then turning it into a podcast, which I think is an amazing idea. And I, I definitely will, will subscribe and listen to that. Um, I was going to ask you what was going on with the, with the rock and roll book. So that's that's great. I also just uh, I just had a uh, short story published today in an online magazine. So called the Right Launch, RightLaunch.com, a June edition, and it's quite a good story. Oh, that's excellent! I had a What's the? Call me back and, and tell me it's a rocking good story. So. Oh, that's amazing! Congratulations, Glenn. What's the name of the story? What color is yellow? What color is yellow in the, what is it? The red? The right, the B-R-I-T-E, launch. The right launch, June edition. So we will make sure all of that information is on the YouTube channel and everywhere else so people can, people can check it out. That is amazing, Glenn. I'm so, I'm so happy for you. I can't wait to read it. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this interview with us. We are so happy to include your story, and I'm so glad we were able to uh, work out all the technical issues and 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 yeah. and get this interview going. Um, all right. So thank you so much, Glenn, and uh, we hopefully we'll, we'll see you soon. So that's all we have for tonight. Thank you everyone for watching and listening. We hope you enjoyed Glenn's story and his interview. We hope that you will join us next week because we have a very special double feature of two stories written by Carol Ann Sefflinger. One is called Annie and the other is my mother's doll. These are two very heartfelt essays about Carol Ann's special relationship with her own doll and also a doll that belonged to her mother. If you haven't already, please go to our YouTube channel and like and subscribe. And this audio podcast will be available for you to download on Spotify and iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you again. And thank you for all of your support. And we look forward to having you next time. Good night. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories, funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories.